Welcome to Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin, translated by Henry Beveridge. We are continuing our reading with Book 2, Chapter 8, Ninth Commandment, Section 47. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more, at great discounts are on the web at www.swrb.com. Also, please consider, pray, and act upon the important truths found in the following quotation by Charles Spurgeon. As the Apostle says to Timothy, So also he says to everyone, Give yourself to reading. He who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves he has no brains of his own. You need to read. Renounce as much as you will all light literature, but study as much as possible sound theological works, especially the Puritanic writers and expositions of the Bible. The best way for you to spend your leisure is to be either reading or praying. And now to SWRB's reading of Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin, which we hope you will find to be a great blessing and which we pray draws you near to the Lord Jesus Christ, for he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by him. John 14:6. Ninth Commandment. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Section 47. The purport of the commandment is, since God, who is truth, abhors falsehood, we must cultivate unfeigned truth towards each other. The sum, therefore, will be that we must not, by calumnies and false accusations, injure our neighbor's name, or by falsehood, impair his fortunes. In fine, that we must not injure anyone from petulance or a love of evil speaking. To this prohibition corresponds the command that we must faithfully assist everyone as far as in us lies in asserting the truth for the maintenance of his good name and his estate. The Lord seems to have intended to explain the commandment in these words, quote, Thou shalt not raise a false report, put not thine hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness, unquote. Quote, Keep thee far from a false matter, unquote. Exodus 23, verses 1 and 7. In another passage, he not only prohibits that species of falsehood which consists in acting the part of talebearers among the people, but says, quote, Neither shalt thou stand against the blood of thy neighbor. Unquote. Leviticus 19, verse 16. Both transgressions are distinctly prohibited. Indeed, there can be no doubt that as in the previous commandment he prohibited cruelty, unchastity, and avarice, so here he prohibits falsehood, which consists of the two parts to which we have adverted. By malignant or vicious detraction we sin against our neighbor's good name. By lying, sometimes even by casting a slur upon him, we injure him in his estate. It makes no difference whether you suppose that formal and judicial testimony is here intended, or the ordinary testimony which is given in private conversation. For we must always recur to the consideration that for each kind of transgression one species is set forth by way of example, that to it the others may be referred, and that the species chiefly selected is that in which the turpitude of the transgression is most apparent. It seems proper, however, to extend it more generally to calumny and sinister insinuations by which our neighbors are unjustly aggrieved. For falsehood and a court of justice is always accompanied with perjury but against perjury, insofar as it profanes and violates the name of God, there is a sufficient provision in the third commandment. Hence the legitimate observance of this precept consists in employing the tongue in the maintenance of truth, so as to promote both the good name and the prosperity of our neighbor. The equity of this is perfectly clear. For if a good name is more precious than riches, a man, in being robbed of his good name, is no less injured than if he were robbed of his goods. While in the latter case, false testimony is sometimes not less injurious than rapin committed by the hand. Section 48. And yet it is strange with what supine security men everywhere sin in this respect. Indeed, very few are found who do not notoriously labor under this disease. Such is the envenomed delight we take both in prying into and exposing our neighbor's faults. Let us not imagine it is a sufficient excuse to say that on many occasions our statements are not false. He who forbids us to defame our neighbor's reputation by falsehood desires us to keep it untarnished insofar as truth will permit. Though the commandment is only directed against falsehood, it intimates that the preservation of our neighbor's good name is recommended. It ought to be a sufficient inducement to us to guard our neighbor's good name that God takes an interest in it. Wherefore, evil speaking in general is undoubtedly condemned. 
Moreover, by evil speaking, we understand not the rebuke which is administered with a view of correcting, not accusation nor judicial decision by which evil is sought to be remedied, not public censure which tends to strike terror into other offenders, not the disclosure made to those whose safety depends on being forewarned, lest unawares they should be brought into danger, but the odious crimination which springs from a malicious and petulant love of slander. Nay, the commandment extends so far as to include that scurrilous, affected urbanity, instinct with invective, by which the failings of others, under an appearance of sportiveness, are bitterly assailed, as some are wont to do, to court the praise of wit, though it should call forth a blush, or inflict a bitter pang. By petulance of this description, our brethren are sometimes grievously wounded. But if we turn our eye to the lawgiver, whose just authority extends over the ears and the mind, as well as the tongue, we cannot fail to perceive that eagerness to listen to slander, and an unbecoming proneness to censorious judgment, are here forbidden. It were absurd to suppose that God hates the disease of evil speaking in the tongue, and yet disapproves not of its malignity in the mind. Wherefore, if the true fear and love of God dwell in us, we must endeavor, as far as is lawful and expedient, and as far as charity admits, neither to listen, nor give utterance to bitter and acrimonious charges, nor rashly entertain sinister suspicions. As just interpreters of the words and actions of other men, let us candidly maintain the honor due to them by our judgment, our ear, and our tongue. Tenth Commandment Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. The purport is, since the Lord would have the whole soul pervaded with love, any feeling of an adverse nature must be banished from our minds. The sum, therefore, will be, that no thought be permitted to insinuate itself into our minds and inflame them with a noxious concupiscence tending to our neighbor's loss. To this corresponds the contrary precept, that everything which we conceive, deliberate, will, or design, be conjoined with the good and advantage of our neighbor. But here it seems we are met with a great and perplexing difficulty. For if it was correctly said above, that under the words adultery and theft, lust and an intention to injure and deceive are prohibited, it may seem superfluous afterwards to employ a separate commandment to prohibit a covetous desire of our neighbor's goods. The difficulty will easily be removed by distinguishing between design and covetousness. Design, such as we have spoken of in the previous commandments, is a deliberate consent of the will, after passion has taken possession of the mind. Covetousness may exist without such deliberation and dissent, when the mind is only stimulated and tickled by vain and perverse objects. As, therefore, the Lord previously ordered that charity should regulate our wishes, studies, and actions, so he now orders us to regulate the thoughts of the mind in the same way, that none of them may be depraved and distorted, so as to give the mind a contrary bent. Having forbidden us to turn and incline our mind to wrath, hatred, adultery, theft, and falsehood, he now forbids us to give our thoughts the same direction. Section 50. Nor is such rectitude demanded without reason. For who can deny the propriety of occupying all the powers of the mind with charity? If it ceases to have charity for its aim, who can question that it is diseased? How comes it that so many desires of a nature hurtful to your brother enter your mind, but just because, disregarding him, you think only of yourself? Were your mind wholly imbued with charity, no portion of it would remain for the entrance of such thoughts. In so far, therefore, as the mind is devoid of charity, it must be under the influence of concupiscence. Someone will object that those fancies which casually rise up in the mind and forthwith vanish away cannot properly be condemned as concupiscences, which have their seat in the heart. I answer that the question here relates to a description of fancies which, while they present themselves to our thoughts, at the same time impress and stimulate the mind with cupidity, since the mind never thinks of making some choice, but the heart is excited and tends towards it. God therefore commands a strong and ardent affection, an affection not to be impeded by any portion, however minute, of concupiscence. He requires a mind so admirably arranged as not to be prompted in the slightest degree, contrary to the law of love. Lest you should imagine that this view is not supported by any grave authority, I may mention that it was first suggested to me by Augustine. But although it was the intention of God to prohibit every kind of perverse desire, he, by way of example, sets before us those objects which are generally regarded as most attractive. 
thus leaving no room for cupidity of any kind by the interdiction of those things in which it especially delights and loves to revel. Such, then, is the second table of the law, in which we are sufficiently instructed in the duties which we owe to man for the sake of God, on a consideration of whose nature the whole system of love is founded. It were vain, therefore, to inculcate the various duties taught in this table without placing your instructions on the fear and reverence to God as their proper foundation. I need not tell the considerate reader that those who make two precepts out of the prohibition of covetousness perversely split one thing into two. There is nothing in the repetition of the words, quote, Thou shalt not covet, unquote. The, quote, house, unquote, being first put down, its different parts are afterwards enumerated, beginning with the, quote, wife, unquote. And hence it is clear that the whole ought to be read consecutively, as is properly done by the Jews. The sum of the whole commandment, therefore, is that whatever each individual possesses remain entire and secure, not only from injury or the wish to injure, but also from the slightest feeling of covetousness which can spring up in the mind. Section 51. It will not now be difficult to ascertain the general end contemplated by the whole law, viz., the fulfillment of righteousness, that man may form his life on the model of divine purity. For therein God has so delineated his own character, that any one exhibiting in action what is commanded would in some measure exhibit a living image of God. Wherefore Moses, when he wished to fix a summary of the whole in the memory of the Israelites, thus addressed them, quote, And now, Israel, what doth the Lord thy God require of thee, but to fear the Lord thy God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, and to serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command thee this day for thy good. Unquote. Deuteronomy 10, verses 12 and 13. And he ceased not to reiterate the same thing whenever he had occasion to mention the end of the law. To this the doctrine of the law pays so much regard that it connects man by holiness of life with his God. And as Moses elsewhere expresses it, Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, and 11, verse 13, and makes him cleave to him. Moreover, this holiness of life is comprehended under the two heads above mentioned. Quote, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength, and thy neighbor as thyself. Unquote. First, our mind must be completely filled with love to God, and then this love must forthwith flow out toward our neighbor. This the apostle shows when he says, quote, The end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and a good conscience, and of faith unfeigned." 1 Timothy 1, verse 5. You see that conscience and faith unfeigned are placed at the head, in other words, true piety, and that from this charity is derived. It is a mistake, then, to suppose that merely the rudiments and first principles of righteousness are delivered in the law to form, as it were, a kind of introduction to good works, and not to guide to the perfect performance of them. For complete perfection, nothing more can be required than is expressed in these passages of Moses and Paul. How far, pray, would he wish to go who is not satisfied with the instruction which directs man to the fear of God, to spiritual worship, practical obedience, in fine purity of conscience, faith unfeigned, and charity? This confirms that interpretation of the law which searches out and finds in its precepts all the duties of piety and charity. Those who merely search for dry and meager elements, as if it taught the will of God only by halves, by no means understand its end, the apostle being witness. Section 52. As in giving a summary of the law, Christ and the apostles sometimes omit the first table, very many fall into the mistake of supposing that their words apply to both tables. In Matthew, Christ calls, quote, judgment, mercy, and faith, unquote, the, quote, weightier matters of the law, unquote. I think it clear that by faith is here meant veracity towards men. But in order to extend the words to the whole law, some take it for piety towards God. This is surely to no purpose, for Christ is speaking of those works by which a man ought to approve himself as just. If we attend to this, we will cease to wonder why elsewhere, when asked by the young man, quote, What good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? Unquote, he simply answers that he must keep the commandments. Quote, thou shalt do no murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, honor thy father and thy mother, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Unquote. 
Matthew 19, verses 16 and 18. For the obedience of the first table consisted almost entirely either in the internal affection of the heart or in ceremonies. The affection of the heart was not visible, and hypocrites were diligent in the observance of ceremonies. But the works of charity were of such a nature as to be a solid attestation of righteousness. The same thing occurs so frequently in the prophets, that it must be familiar to every one who has any tolerable acquaintance with them. For almost on every occasion, when they exhort men to repentance, omitting the first table, they insist on faith, judgment, mercy, and equity. Nor do they, in this way, omit the fear of God. They only require a serious proof of it from its signs. It is well known, indeed, that when they treat of the law, they generally insist on the second table, because therein the cultivation of righteousness and integrity is best manifested. There is no occasion to quote passages. Everyone can easily, for himself, perceive the truth of my observation. Section 53 Is it then true, you will ask, that it is a more complete summary of righteousness to live innocently with men than piously towards God? By no means, but because no man, as a matter of course, observes charity in all respects, unless he seriously fear God, such observance is a proof of piety also. To this we may add, that the Lord, well knowing that none of our good deeds can reach him, as the psalmist declares, Psalm 16, verse 2, does not demand from us duties towards himself, but exercises us in good works towards our neighbor. Hence the apostle, not without cause, makes the whole perfection of the saints to consist in charity. Ephesians 3, verse 19, and Colossians 3, verse 14. And in another passage, he not improperly calls it the, quote, fulfilling of the law, unquote, adding that, quote, he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law, unquote. Romans 13, verse 8. And again, quote, all the law is fulfilled in this. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Unquote. Galatians 5, verse 14. For this is the very thing which Christ himself teaches when he says, quote, All things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Unquote. Matthew 7, verse 12. It is certain that in the law and the prophets, faith and whatever pertains to the due worship of God holds the first place, and that to this charity is made subordinate. But our Lord means that in the law the observance of justice and equity towards men is prescribed as the means which we are to employ in testifying a pious fear of God, if we truly possess it. Section 54 Let us therefore hold that our life will be framed in best accordance with the will of God and the requirements of His law, when it is, in every respect, most advantageous to our brethren. But in the whole law there is not one syllable which lays down a rule as to what man is to do or avoid for the advantage of his own carnal nature. And indeed, since men are naturally prone to excessive self-love, which they always retain, how great soever their departure from the truth may be, there was no need of a law to inflame a love already existing in excess. Hence it is perfectly plain that the observance of the commandments consists not in the love of ourselves, but in the love of God and our neighbor, and that he leads the best and holiest life, who as little as may be, studies and lives for himself, and that none lives worse and more unrighteously than he who studies and lives only for himself, and seeks and thinks only of his own. Nay, the better to express how strongly we should be inclined to love our neighbor, the Lord has made self-love, as it were, the standard, there being no feeling in our nature of greater strength and vehemence. The force of the expression ought to be carefully weighed, for he does not, as some sophists have stupidly dreamed, assign the first place to self-love and the second to charity. He rather transfers to others the love which we naturally feel for ourselves. Hence the apostle declares that charity, quote, seeketh not her own, unquote, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 5. Nor is the argument worth a straw that the thing regulated must always be inferior to the rule. The Lord did not make self-love the rule, as if love towards others was subordinate to it. But whereas, through natural pravity, the feeling of love usually rests on ourselves, he shows that it ought to diffuse itself in another direction, that we should be prepared to do good to our neighbor with no less alacrity, ardor, and solicitude than to ourselves. Section 55 our Savior, having shown in the parable of the Samaritan, Luke 10, verse 36, that the term neighbor comprehends the most remote stranger, there is no reason for limiting the precept of love to our own connections. 
I deny not that the closer the relation, the more frequent our offices of kindness should be. For the condition of humanity requires that there be more duties in common between those who are more nearly connected by the ties of relationship, our friendship, our neighborhood. And this is done without any offense to God, by whose providence we are, in a manner, impelled to do it. But I say that the whole human race, without exception, are to be embraced with one feeling of charity that here there is no distinction of Greek or barbarian, worthy or unworthy, friend or foe, since all are to be viewed not in themselves, but in God. If we turn aside from this view, there is no wonder that we entangle ourselves in error. Wherefore, if we would hold the true course in love, our first step must be to turn our eyes not to man, the sight of whom might oftener produce hatred than love, but to God, who requires that the love which we bear to him be diffused among all mankind, so that our fundamental principle must ever be, let a man be what he may, he is still to be loved because God is loved. Section 56. Wherefore nothing could be more pestilential than the ignorance or wickedness of the schoolmen in converting the precepts respecting revenge and the love of enemies, precepts which had formerly been delivered to all the Jews, and were then delivered universally to all Christians, into councils which it was free to obey or disobey, confining the necessary observance of them to the monks, who were made more righteous than ordinary Christians, by the simple circumstance of voluntarily binding themselves to obey councils. The reason they assign for not receiving them as laws is that they seem too heavy and burdensome, especially to Christians who are under the law of grace. Have they, indeed, the hardihood to remodel the eternal law of God concerning the love of our neighbor? Is there a page of the law in which any such distinction exists, or rather do we not meet in every page with commands which, in the strictest terms, require us to love our enemies? What is meant by commanding us to feed our enemy? if he is hungry, to bring back his ox or his ass if we meet it going astray, or help it up if we see it lying under its burden. Proverbs 25, verse 21, and Exodus 23, verse 4. Shall we show kindness to cattle for man's sake, and have no feeling of goodwill to himself? What? Is not the word of the Lord eternally true? Quote, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. Unquote. Deuteronomy 32, verse 35. This is elsewhere more explicitly stated, quote, Thou shalt not avenge, nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people. Unquote. Leviticus 19, verse 18. Let them either erase these passages from the law, or let them acknowledge the Lord as a lawgiver, not falsely feign him to be merely a counselor. Section 57. And what, pray, is meant by the following passage, which they have dared to insult with this absurd gloss? Quote, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. Unquote. Matthew 5, verses 44 and 45. Who does not here concur in the reasoning of Chrysostom, that the nature of the motive makes it plain that these are not exhortations, but precepts? For what is left to us if we are excluded from the number of the children of God? According to the schoolmen, monks alone will be the children of our Father in heaven. Monks alone will dare to invoke God as their Father. And in the meantime, how will it fare with the church? By the same rule, she will be confined to heathens and publicans. For our Savior says, quote, If ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? Unquote. It will truly be well with us if we are left only the name of Christians, while we are deprived of the inheritance of the kingdom of heaven. Nor is the argument of Augustine less forcible. Quote, when the Lord forbids adultery, he forbids it in regard to the wife of a foe, not less than the wife of a friend. When he forbids theft, he does not allow stealing of any description, whether from a friend or an enemy. Unquote. Now these two commandments, quote, Thou shalt not steal, Thou shalt not commit adultery, unquote, Paul brings under the rule of love. Nay, he says that they are briefly comprehended in this saying, quote, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, unquote. Romans 13, verse 9. Therefore, Paul must either be a false interpreter of the law, or we must necessarily conclude that under this precept we are bound to love our enemies just as our friends. Those then show themselves to be, in truth, the children of Satan, who thus licentiously shake off a yoke common to the children of God. 
It may be doubted whether, in promulgating this dogma, they have displayed greater stupidity or impudence. There is no ancient writer who does not hold it as certain that these are pure precepts. It was not even doubted in the age of Gregory, as is plain from his decided assertion, for he holds it to be incontrovertible that they are precepts, and how stupidly they argue. The burden, say they, were too difficult for Christians to bear, as if anything could be imagined more difficult than to love the Lord with all the heart and soul and strength. Compared with this law, there is none which may not seem easy, whether it be to love our enemy or to banish every feeling of revenge from our minds. To our weakness, indeed, everything, even to the minutest tittle of the law, is arduous and difficult. In the Lord we have strength. It is His to give what He orders, and to order what He wills. That Christians are under the law of grace means not that they are to wander unrestrained without law, but that they are engrafted into Christ, by whose grace they are freed from the curse of the law, and by whose spirit they have the law written in their hearts. This grace Paul has termed, but not in the proper sense of the term, a law, alluding to the law of God with which he was contrasting it. The schoolmen, laying hold of the term law, make it the groundwork of their vain speculations. Section 58. The same must be said of their application of the term venial sin, both to the hidden impiety which violates the first table, and the direct transgression of the last commandment of the second table. They define venial sin to be desire unaccompanied with deliberate assent, and not remaining long in the heart. But I maintain that it cannot even enter the heart unless through a want of those things which are required in the law. We are forbidden to have strange gods. When the mind, under the influence of distrust, looks elsewhere, or is seized with some sudden desire to transfer its blessedness to some other quarter, whence are these movements, however, evanescent, but just because there is some empty corner in the soul to receive such temptations? And, not to lengthen out the discussion, there is a precept to love God with the whole heart, and mind, and soul. And therefore, if all the powers of the soul are not directed to the love of God, there is a departure from the obedience of the law. Because those internal enemies which rise up against the dominion of God and countermand his edicts prove that his throne is not well established in our consciences. It has been shown that the last commandment goes to this extent. Has some undue longing sprung up in our mind? Then we are chargeable with covetousness and stand convicted as transgressors of the law. For the law forbids us not only to meditate and plan our neighbor's loss, but to be stimulated and inflamed with covetousness. That every transgression of the law lays us under the curse, and therefore even the slightest desires cannot be exempted from the fatal sentence. Quote, In weighing our sins, unquote, says Augustine, quote, Let us not use a deceitful balance, weighing at our own discretion what we will, and how we will, calling this heavy and that light. But let us use the divine balance of the Holy Scriptures as taken from the treasury of the Lord, and by it weigh every offense, nay, not weigh, but rather recognize what has been already weighed by the Lord." Unquote. And what saith the Scripture? Certainly when Paul says that, quote, "...the wages of sin is death," unquote, Romans 6.23, he shows that he knew nothing of this vile distinction. As we are but too prone to hypocrisy, there was very little occasion for this sop to soothe our torpid consciences. Section 59 I wish they would consider what our Savior meant when he said, quote, Whosoever shall break one of these least commandments, and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. Unquote. Matthew 5, verse 19 are they not of this number when they presume to extenuate the transgression of the law, as if it were unworthy of death? The proper course had been to consider not simply what is commanded, but who it is that commands, because every least transgression of this law derogates from his authority. Do they count it a small matter to insult the majesty of God in any one respect? Again, since God has explained his will in the law, everything contrary to the law is displeasing to him. Will they feign that the wrath of God is so disarmed that the punishment of death will not forthwith follow upon it? He has declared plainly, if they could be induced to listen to his voice, instead of darkening his clear truth by their insipid subtleties, quote, The soul that sinneth it shall die. Unquote. Ezekiel 18, verse 20. Again, in the passage lately quoted, quote, The wages of sin is death. Unquote. What these men acknowledge to be sin, because they are unable to deny it, they contend is not mortal. Having already indulged this madness too long, let them learn to repent. 
or, if they persist in their infatuation, taking no further notice of them, let the children of God remember that all sin is mortal, because it is rebellion against the will of God, and necessarily provokes his anger, and because it is a violation of the law, against every violation of which, without exception, the judgment of God has been pronounced. The faults of the saints are indeed venial, not, however, in their own nature, but because, through the mercy of God, they obtain pardon. Chapter 9 Christ, though known to the Jews under the law, yet only manifested under the gospel. There are five sections. Section 1. Since God was pleased, and not in vain, to testify in ancient times, by means of expiations and sacrifices, that he was a father, and to set apart for himself a chosen people, he was doubtless known even then in the same character in which he is now fully revealed to us. Accordingly, Malachi having enjoined the Jews to attend to the law of Moses, because after his death there was to be an interruption of the prophetical office, immediately after declares that the Son of Righteousness should arise, Malachi 4, 2, thus intimating that though the law had the effect of keeping the pious in expectation of the coming Messiah, there was ground to hope for much greater light on his advent. For this reason Peter, speaking of the ancient prophets, says, quote, Unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us, they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven. Unquote. 1 Peter 1, verse 12. Not that the prophetical doctrine was useless to the ancient people, or unavailing to the prophets themselves, but that they did not obtain possession of the treasure which God has transmitted to us by their hands. The grace of which they testified is now set familiarly before our eyes. They had only a slight foretaste. To us is given a fuller fruition. Our Savior, accordingly, while he declares that Moses testified of him, extols the superior measure of grace bestowed upon us. John 5, verse 46. Addressing his disciples, he says, quote, Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For verily I say unto you, that many prophets and righteous men have desired to see those things which ye see, and have not seen them, and to hear those things which ye hear, and have not heard them. Unquote. Matthew 13, verse 16, and Luke 10, verse 23. It is no small commendation of the gospel revelation that God has preferred us to holy men of old, so much distinguished for piety. There is nothing in this view inconsistent with another passage in which our Savior says, quote, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad, unquote. John 8, verse 56. For though the event being remote, his view of it was obscure, he had full assurance that it would one day be accomplished, and hence the joy which the holy patriarch experienced even to his death. Nor does John Baptist, when he says, quote, No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Unquote. John 1, verse 18. Exclude the pious who had previously died from a participation in the knowledge and light which are manifested in the person of Christ. But comparing their condition with ours, he intimates that the mysteries which they only beheld dimly under the shadows are made clear to us, as is well explained by the author of the epistle to the Hebrews in these words, quote, God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. Unquote. Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2. Hence, although this only begotten Son, who is now to us the brightness of his Father's glory, and the express image of his person, was formerly made known to the Jews, as we have elsewhere shown from Paul, that he was the deliverer under the old dispensation. It is nevertheless true, as Paul himself elsewhere declares, that, quote, God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God and the face of Jesus Christ, unquote. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. Because when he appeared in this his image, he in a manner made himself visible, his previous appearance having been shadowy and obscure, more shameful and more detestable, therefore is the ingratitude of those who walk blindfold in this meridian light. Accordingly, Paul says that, quote, The God of this world hath blinded their minds, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ should shine unto them, unquote. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. Section 2. By the gospel I understand the clear manifestation of the mystery of Christ. I confess, indeed, that inasmuch as the term gospel is applied by Paul to the doctrine of faith, 2 Timothy 4, 
verse 10. It includes all the promises by which God reconciles men to himself, and which occur throughout the law. For Paul there opposes faith to those terrors which vex and torment the conscience when salvation is sought by means of works. Hence it follows, that gospel, taken in a large sense, comprehends the evidences of mercy and paternal favor which God bestowed on the patriarchs. Still, by way of excellence, it is applied to the promulgation of the grace manifested in Christ. This is not only founded on general use, but has the sanction of our Savior and his apostles. Hence it is described as one of his peculiar characteristics, that he preached the gospel of the kingdom, Matthew 4, verse 23 and 9, verse 35, and Mark 1, verse 14. Mark, in his preface to the gospel, calls it, quote, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, unquote. There is no use of collecting passages to prove what is already perfectly known. Christ, at his advent, quote, brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, unquote. 2 Timothy 1, verse 10. Paul does not mean by these words that the fathers were plunged in the darkness of death before the Son of God became incarnate, but he claims for the gospel the honorable distinction of being a new and extraordinary kind of embassy by which God fulfilled what he had promised, these promises being realized in the person of the Son. For though believers have at all times experienced the truth of Paul's declaration that, quote, all the promises of God in him are yea and amen, unquote, inasmuch as these promises were sealed upon their hearts. Yet because he hath in his flesh completed all the parts of our salvation, this vivid manifestation of realities was justly entitled to this new and special distinction. Accordingly, Christ says, quote, hereafter ye shall see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man, unquote. For though he seems to allude to the latter which the patriarch Jacob saw in vision, he commends the excellence of his advent in this, that it opened the gate of heaven and gave us familiar access to it. Section 3 Here we must guard against the diabolical imagination of Servetus, who, from a wish, or at least the pretense of a wish, to extol the greatness of Christ, abolishes the promises entirely, as if they had come to an end at the same time with the law. He pretends that by the faith of the gospel all the promises have been fulfilled, as if there was no distinction between us and Christ. I lately observed that Christ had not left any part of our salvation incomplete, but from this it is erroneously inferred that we are now put in possession of all the blessings purchased by him, thereby implying that Paul was incorrect in saying, quote, We are saved by hope, unquote. Romans 3, verse 24. I admit, indeed, that by believing in Christ we pass from death unto life, but we must at the same time remember the words of John, that though we know we are, quote, the sons of God, unquote, quote, it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is, unquote. 1 John 3, verse 2. Therefore, although Christ offers us in the gospel a present fullness of spiritual blessings, fruition remains in the keeping of hope, until we are divested of corruptible flesh and transformed into the glory of him who has gone before us. Meanwhile, in leaning on the promises, we obey the command of the Holy Spirit, whose authority ought to have weight enough with us to silence all the barkings of that impure dog. We have it on the testimony of Paul that, quote, Godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is, and of that which is to come, unquote. 1 Timothy 4, verse 8. For which reason he glories in being, quote, an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the promise of life which is in Christ Jesus, unquote. 2 Timothy 1, verse 1. And he elsewhere reminds us that we have the same promises which were given to the saints in ancient time, 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1. In fine, he makes the sum of our felicity consist in being sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Indeed, we have no enjoyment of Christ, unless by embracing him as clothed with his own promises. Hence it is that he indeed dwells in our hearts, and yet we are as pilgrims in regard to him, because, quote, we walk by faith, not by sight, unquote. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 6 and 7. There is no inconsistency in the two things, viz., that in Christ we possess everything pertaining to the perfection of the heavenly life, and yet that faith is only a vision, quote, of things not seen, unquote. Hebrews 11, 1. Only there is this difference to be observed in the nature or quality of the promises, that the gospel points with the finger to what the law shadowed under types. Section 4. 
Hence also we see the error of those who, in comparing the law with the gospel, represent it merely as a comparison between the merit of works and the gratuitous imputation of righteousness. The contrast thus made is by no means to be rejected, because, by the term law, Paul frequently understands that rule of holy living in which God exacts what is his due, giving no hope of life unless we obey in every respect and, on the other hand, denouncing a curse for the slightest failure. This Paul does when showing that we are freely accepted of God, and accounted righteous by being pardoned, because that obedience of the law to which the reward is promised is nowhere to be found. Hence, he appropriately represents the righteousness of the law and the gospel as opposed to each other. But the gospel has not succeeded the whole law in such a sense as to introduce a different method of salvation. It rather confirms the law and proves that everything which is promised is fulfilled. What was shadow? It has made substance. When Christ says that the law and the prophets were until John, he does not consign the fathers to the curse, which, as the slaves of the law, they could not escape. He intimates that they were only imbued with the rudiments and remained far beneath the height of the gospel doctrine. Accordingly, Paul, after calling the gospel, quote, the power of God unto salvation to every one that believeth, unquote, shortly after adds that it was, quote, witnessed by the law and the prophets, unquote, Romans 1, verse 16, and 3, verse 21. And in the end of the same epistle, though he describes, quote, the preaching of Jesus Christ, unquote, as, quote, the revelation of the mystery which was kept secret since the world began, unquote, he modifies the expression by adding that it is, quote, now made manifest, unquote, quote, by the scriptures of the prophets, unquote. Romans 16, verses 25 and 26. Hence we infer that when the whole law is spoken of, the gospel differs from it only in respect of clearness of manifestation. Still, on account of the inestimable riches of grace set before us in Christ, there is good reason for saying that by his advent the kingdom of heaven was erected on the earth. Matthew 12, verse 28. Section 5. John stands between the law and the gospel, holding an intermediate office allied to both. For though he gave a summary of the gospel when he pronounced Christ to be, quote, the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world, unquote, yet inasmuch as he did not unfold the incomparable power and glory which shone forth in his resurrection, Christ says that he was not equal to the apostles. For this is the meaning of the words, quote, Among them that are born of woman, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist, notwithstanding he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he, unquote. Matthew 11, verse 11. He is not there commending the persons of men, but after preferring John to all the prophets, he gives the first place to the preaching of the gospel, which is elsewhere designated by the kingdom of heaven. When John himself, in answer to the Jews, says that he is only, quote, a voice, unquote, John 1, verse 23, as if he were inferior to the prophets, it is not in pretended humility, but he means to teach that the proper embassy was not entrusted to him, that he only performed the office of a messenger, as had been foretold by Malachi, quote, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, unquote. Malachi 4, verse 5. And indeed, during the whole course of his ministry, he did nothing more than prepare disciples for Christ. He even proves from Isaiah that this was the office to which he was divinely appointed. In this sense, he is said by Christ to have been, quote, a burning and a shining light, unquote. John 5, verse 35, because full day had not yet appeared. And yet this does not prevent us from classing him among the preachers of the gospel, since he used the same baptism which was afterwards committed to the apostles. Still, however, he only began that which had freer course unto the apostles after Christ was taken up into the heavenly glory. Chapter 10. The Resemblance Between the Old Testament and the New. There are 23 sections. Section 1. From what has been said above, it must now be clear that all whom, from the beginning of the world, God adopted as his peculiar people, were taken into covenant with him on the same conditions and under the same bond of doctrine as ourselves. But as it is of no small importance to establish this point, I will here add it by way of appendix, and to show, since the fathers were partakers with us in the same inheritance, and hoped for a common salvation through the grace of the same mediator, how far their condition in this respect was different from our own. 
For although the passages which we have collected from the law and the prophets for the purpose of proof make it plain that there never was any other rule of piety and religion among the people of God, yet as many things are written on the subject of the difference between the Old and New Testaments in a manner which may perplex ordinary readers, it will be proper here to devote a special place to the better and more exact discussion of this subject. This discussion, which would have been most useful at any rate, has been rendered necessary by that monstrous miscreant Servetus and some madmen of the sect of the Anabaptists who think of the people of Israel just as they would do of some herd of swine, absurdly imagining that the Lord gorged them with temporal blessings here and gave them no hope of a blessed immortality. Let us guard pious minds against this pestilential error while we at the same time remove all the difficulties which are wont to start up when mention is made of the difference between the Old and the New Testaments. By the way, also, let us consider what resemblance and what difference there is between the covenant which the Lord made with the Israelites before the advent of Christ, and that which he has made with us now that Christ is manifested. Section 2. It is possible, indeed, to explain both in one word. The covenant made with all the fathers, in so far from differing from ours, in reality and substance, that it is altogether one and the same, still the administration differs. But because this brief summary is insufficient to give anyone a full understanding of the subject, our explanation to be useful must extend to a greater length. It were superfluous, however, in showing the similarity, or rather identity, of the two dispensations, again to treat the particulars which have already been discussed, as it were unseasonable to introduce those which are still to be considered elsewhere. What we propose to insist upon here may be reduced to three heads. First, that temporal opulence and felicity was not the goal to which the Jews were invited to aspire, but that they were admitted to the hope of immortality and that assurance of this adoption was given by immediate communications by the law and by the prophets. Secondly, that the covenant by which they were reconciled to the Lord was founded on no merits of their own, but solely on the mercy of God who called them. And thirdly, that they both had and knew Christ the mediator by whom they were united to God and made capable of receiving his promises. The second of these, as it is not yet perhaps sufficiently understood, will be fully considered in its own place, in Book 3, Chapters 15 through 18. For we will prove by many clear passages in the Prophets that all which the Lord has ever given or promised to his people is of mere goodness and indulgence. The third also has, in various places, been not obscurely demonstrated. Even the first has not been left unnoticed. Section 3 as the first is most pertinent to the present subject and is most controverted, we shall enter more fully into the consideration of it, taking care at the same time, where any of the others require explanation to supply it by the way, or afterwards add it at its proper place. The Apostle indeed removes all doubt when he says that the gospel which God gave concerning his Son, Jesus Christ, quote, he had promised aforetime by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, unquote. Romans 1, verse 2. And again, that, quote, the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, unquote. Romans 3, verse 21. For the gospel does not confine the hearts of men to the enjoyment of the present life, but raises them to the hope of immortality, does not fix them down to earthly delights, but announcing that there is a treasure laid up in heaven, carries the heart thither also. For in another place he thus explains, quote, After that ye believed, open bracket, the gospel, close bracket, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance unto the redemption of the purchased possession. Unquote. Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14. Again, quote, Since we heard of your faith in Jesus Christ, and of the love which ye have to all the saints, for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof ye heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. Unquote. Colossians 1, verse 4. Again, quote, Whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Unquote. Second Thessalonians 2, verse 14. Whence also it is called the word of salvation and the power of God, with salvation to every one that believes, and the kingdom of heaven. But if the doctrine of the gospel is spiritual, and gives access to the possession of incorruptible life, let us not suppose that those to whom it was promised and declared altogether neglected the care of the soul and lived stupidly like cattle in the enjoyment of bodily pleasures. Let no one here quibble and say that the promises concerning the gospel which are contained in the law and the prophets were designed for a new people. 
For Paul, shortly after making that statement concerning the gospel promised in the law, adds that, quote, Whatsoever things the law saith, it saith to those who are under the law, unquote. I admit, indeed, he is there treating of a different subject. But when he said that everything contained in the law was directed to the Jews, he was not so oblivious as not to remember what he had said a few verses before of the gospel promised in the law. Most clearly, therefore, does the apostle demonstrate that the Old Testament had special reference to the future life when he says that the promises of the gospel were comprehended under it. Section 4 in the same way, we infer that the Old Testament was both established by the free mercy of God and confirmed by the intercession of Christ. For the preaching of the gospel declares nothing more than that sinners, without any merit of their own, are justified by the paternal indulgence of God. It is wholly summed up in Christ, who then will presume to represent the Jews as destitute of Christ when we know that they were parties to the gospel covenant which has its only foundation in Christ. Who will presume to make them aliens to the benefit of gratuitous salvation, when we know that they were instructed in the doctrine of justification by faith? And not to dwell on a point which is clear, we have the remarkable saying of our Lord, quote, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad, unquote. John 8, verse 56. What Christ here declares of Abraham, an apostle shows to be applicable to all believers, when he says that Jesus Christ is the, quote, same yesterday, today, and forever, unquote. Hebrews 13, verse 8. For he is not there speaking merely of the eternal divinity of Christ, but of his power, of which believers had always full proof. Hence, both the Blessed Virgin and Zechariah, in their hymns, say that the salvation revealed in Christ was a fulfillment of the mercy promised, quote, to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever, unquote. Luke 1, verses 55 and 72. If by manifesting Christ the Lord fulfilled his ancient oath, it cannot be denied that the subject of that oath must ever have been Christ and eternal life. Section 5. Nay, the apostle makes the Israelites our equals, not only in the grace of the covenant, but also in the signification of the sacraments. For employing the example of those punishments which the scripture states to have been of old inflicted on the Jews, in order to deter the Corinthians from falling into similar wickedness, he begins with promising that they have no ground to claim for themselves any privilege which can exempt them from the divine vengeance which overtook the Jews, since the Lord not only visited them with the same mercies, but also distinguished his grace among them by the same symbols, as if he had said, if you think you are out of danger, because the baptism which you received, and the supper of which you daily partake, have excellent promises, and if, in the meantime, despising the goodness of God, you indulge in licentiousness, know that the Jews, on whom the Lord inflicted his severest judgments, possessed similar symbols. They were baptized in passing through the sea, and in the cloud which protected them from the burning heat of the sun. It is said that this passage was a carnal baptism, corresponding in some degree to our spiritual baptism. But if so, there would be a want of conclusiveness in the argument of the apostle, whose object is to prevent Christians from imagining that they excelled the Jews in the matter of baptism. Besides, the cattle cannot apply to what immediately follows, viz., that they did, quote, all eat the same spiritual meat, and did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ, unquote. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 3 and 4. Section 6. To take off the force of this passage of Paul, an objection is founded on the words of our Savior, quote, Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness, and are dead, unquote. Quote, If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever, unquote. John 6, verses 49 and 51. There is no difficulty in reconciling the two passages. The Lord, as he was addressing hearers who only desired to be filled with earthly food, while they cared not for the true food of the soul, in some degree adapts his speech to their capacity, and in particular to meet the carnal view, draws a comparison between manna and his own body. They called upon him to prove his authority by performing some miracle, such as Moses performed in the wilderness, when he obtained manna from heaven. In this manna they saw nothing but a relief of the bodily hunger from which the people were then suffering. They did not penetrate to the sublimer mystery to which Paul refers. Christ, therefore, to demonstrate that the blessing which they ought to expect from him was more excellent than the lauded one which Moses had bestowed upon their fathers, draws this comparison. If, in your opinion, 
It was a great and memorable miracle when the Lord, by Moses, supplied his people with heavenly food, that they might be supported for a season, and not perish in the wilderness from famine. From this infer how much more excellent is the food which bestows immortality. We see why our Lord omitted to mention what was of principal virtue in the manna, and mentioned only its meanest use since the Jews had, as it were, by way of upgrading, cast up Moses to him as one who had relieved the necessity of the people by means of manna, he answers that he was the minister of a much larger grace, one compared with which the bodily nourishment of the people, on which they set so high a value, ought to be held worthless. Paul again, knowing that the Lord, when he rained manna from heaven, had not merely supplied their bodies with food, but had also dispensed it as containing a spiritual mystery, to typify the spiritual quickening which is obtained in Christ, does not overlook that quality which was most deserving of consideration. Wherefore it is surely and clearly proved that the same promises of celestial and eternal life which the Lord now gives to us were not only communicated to the Jews, but also sealed by truly spiritual sacraments. This subject is copiously discussed by Augustine in his work against Faustus the Manichae. Section 7. But if my readers would rather have passages quoted from the Law and the Prophets, from which they may see, as we have already done from Christ and the Apostles, that the spiritual covenant was common also to the fathers, I will yield to the wish, and the more willingly, because opponents will thus be more surely convinced, that henceforth there will be no room for evasion and I will begin with a proof which, though I know it will seem futile and almost ridiculous to supercilious Anabaptists, will have very great weight with the docile and sober-minded. I take it for granted that the word of God has such an inherent efficacy that it quickens the souls of all whom he pleased to favor with the communication of it. Peter's statement has ever been true, that it is an incorruptible seed, quote, which liveth and abideth forever, unquote, verse Peter 1, verse 23, as he infers from the words of Isaiah, in Isaiah 40, verse 6. Now when God in ancient times bound the Jews to him by this sacred bond, there cannot be a doubt that he separated them unto the hope of eternal life. When I say that they embraced the word which brought them nearer to God, I refer not to that general method of communication which is diffused through heaven and earth, and all the creatures of the earth, and which, though it quickens all things, each according to its nature rescues none from the bondage of corruption. I refer to that special mode of communication, by which the minds of the pious are both enlightened in the knowledge of God, and, in a manner, linked to him. Adam, Abel, Noah, Abraham, and the other patriarchs, having been united to God by this illumination of the word, I say there cannot be the least doubt that entrance was given them into the immortal kingdom of God. They had that solid participation in God which cannot exist without the blessing of everlasting life. Section 8 if the point still seems somewhat involved, let us pass to the form of the covenant, which will not only satisfy calm thinkers, but sufficiently establish the ignorance of gainsayers. The covenant which God always made with his service was this, quote, I will walk among you, and I will be your God, and ye shall be my people, unquote. Leviticus 26, verse 12. These words, even as the prophets are wont to expound them, comprehend life and salvation and the whole sum of blessedness. For David repeatedly declares, and with good reason, quote, Happy is that people whose God is the Lord, unquote. Quote, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, and the people whom he hath chosen for his own inheritance, unquote. Psalm 144, verse 15, and 33, verse 12. And this not merely in respect of earthly happiness, but because he rescues from death, constantly preserves, and with eternal mercy, visits those whom he has adopted for his people. As is said in other prophets, quote, Art not thou from everlasting, O Lord my God, mine Holy One? Shall we not die? Unquote. Quote, the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, he will save us. Unquote. Quote, Happy art thou, O Israel, who is like unto thee, O people saved by the Lord. Unquote. Habakkuk 1, verse 12, Isaiah 33, verse 22 and Deuteronomy 33, verse 29. But not to labor superfluously, the prophets are constantly reminding us that no good thing, and consequently no assurance of salvation, is wanting provided the Lord is our God, and justly. For if his face, the moment it hath shown upon us, is a perfect pledge of salvation, how can he manifest himself to anyone as his God without opening to him the treasures of salvation? 
the terms on which God makes himself ours, is to dwell in the midst of us, as he declared by Moses. Leviticus 26, verse 11. But such presence cannot be enjoyed without life being at the same time possessed along with it. And though nothing more had been expressed, they had a sufficiently clear promise of spiritual life in these words, quote, I am your God, unquote. Exodus 6, verse 7. For he declared that he would be a God, not to their bodies only, but specially to their souls. Souls, however, if not united to God by righteousness, remain estranged from him in death. On the other hand, that union, wherever it exists, will bring perpetual salvation with it. Section 9. To this we may add that he not only declared he was, but also promised that he would be their God. By this their hope was expanded beyond present good, and stretched forward into eternity. Moreover, that this observance of the future had the effect appears from the many passages in which the faithful console themselves, not only in their present evils, but also for the future by calling to mind that God was never to desert them. Moreover, in regard to the second part of the promise, viz., the blessing of God, its extending beyond the limits of the present life was still more clearly confirmed by the words, I will be the God of your seed after you. Genesis 17, verse 7. If he was to manifest his favor to the dead by doing good to their posterity, much less would he deny his favor to themselves. God is not like men who transfer their love to the children of their friends, because the opportunity of bestowing kind offices as they wish upon themselves is interrupted by death. But God, whose kindness is not impeded by death, does not deprive the dead of benefit of his mercy, which, on their account, he continues to a thousand generations. God, therefore, was pleased to give a striking proof of the abundance and greatness of his goodness which they were to enjoy after death when he described it as overflowing to all their posterity. Exodus 20, verse 6. The truth of this promise was sealed, and in a manner completed when, long after the death of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he called himself their God. Exodus 20, verse 6. And why? Was not the name absurd if they had perished? It would have been just the same as if he had said, I am the God of men who exist not. Accordingly, the evangelists relate that, by this very argument, our Savior refuted the Sadducees, Matthew 22, verse 23, and Luke 20, verse 32, who were, therefore, unable to deny that the resurrection of the dead was attested by Moses, inasmuch as he had taught them that all the saints are in his hand, Deuteronomy 33, verse 3. Once it is easy to infer that death is not the extinction of those who are taken under the tutelage, guardianship, and protection of him who is the disposer of life and death. Section 10. Let us now see, and on this the controversy principally turns, whether or not believers themselves were so instructed by the Lord as to feel that they had elsewhere a better life, and to aspire to it while disregarding the present. First, the mode of life which heaven had imposed upon them made it a constant exercise, by which they were reminded that if in this world only they had hope, they were of all men the most miserable. Adam, most unhappy even in the mere remembrance of his lost felicity, with difficulty supplies his wants by anxious labors, and that the divine curse might not be restricted to bodily labor. His only remaining solace becomes a source of the deepest grief. Of two sons, the one is torn from him by the parasitical hand of his brother while the other, who survives, causes detestation and horror by his very look. Abel, cruelly murdered in the very flower of his days, is an example of the calamity which had come upon man. While the whole world are securely living in luxury, Noah, with much fatigue, spends a great part of his life in building an ark. He escapes death, but by greater troubles than a hundred deaths could have given. Besides his ten months' residence in the ark, as in a kind of sepulchre, nothing could have been more unpleasant than to have remained so long pent up among the filth of beasts. After escaping these difficulties, he falls into a new cause of sorrow. He sees himself mocked by his own son, and is forced with his own mouth to curse one whom, by the great kindness of God, he had received safe from the deluge. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts, are on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 
780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, AB, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com or swrb at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. SWRB's email list is a double opt-in list, so once you've sent us your email address, you will be asked by email to confirm that you want to join our list using the email address you have supplied. Your email information will be kept confidential, and you can easily remove yourself from our email list by simply emailing us at swrb at swrb.com with the word remove in the subject line. Once you are on our email list, you will be alerted to all the new free Reformation resources, free MP3s, free electronic books and text, etc. SWRB makes available on the web, as well as, at times, to our best discounts and super specials. We also encourage you to reproduce this audio resource and to pass it on to your friends, but we only authorize this as long as the full content of the message, including the header and trailer, is not altered in any way and as long as the audio file or cassette is given away for free. Thank you again for listening to this SWRB reading, and remember that Isaiah 26.3 states, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. And 2 Corinthians 13.11 concludes, Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you.